Welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Welcome to our podcast, Research Culture Uncovered. It's season four, focusing on researcher careers, and we're already in episode five. I'm your host, Ruth Winden, and I'm the Careers with Research Consultant at the University of Leeds. My guest today is someone who has built his entire career around collaboration. With a background in large public sector construction and procurement projects, focusing on risk and insurance, his knowledge and lived experience of making collaboration work is second to none. And to add to his understanding from a project management and a human behavior side, he has not only thrown two master's programs into the mix, he has also embarked on a PhD to explore the topics even further. Warren Beardle does his research in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of Leeds. Warren says in his LinkedIn profile, my passion is acting in collaboration and facilitating any means for others to do the same. Integrity is thrived for and defended. Nothing is certain until demonstrated to be so. Join me for a conversation about how to build true collaborations, how to build trust, and why conflict is a necessary and healthy part of any research project and collaboration. We finish with a conversation about how research can open many doors and why creating opportunities a good dose of serendipity, and also some luck play a part in a researcher's journey. We're going straight into the conversation where Warren gives us an insight into his career. I graduated in 94 as a you know an undergraduate, went straight into working in, in the city of London on the insurance side, essentially built a career around, you know, going from graduate trainee up to being a partner in a working firm and spent most of that time in and around construction, in and around construction projects, in and around the construction environment, particularly the, the more complicated construction in terms of the parties involved, because I was dealing with public-private partnerships, PPP, and that is schools, it is hospitals, it is road construction, the old tunneling project and the old heavy civils project. And the parties involved are government entities, there are senior debt lenders, we're lending money to these long-term projects. Then you've obviously also got the construction contractors. But then there's a long operational phase on these projects as well. You're, you're, building, you're building a school or a road or a hospital. Um, the finance is being brought in from these private banks. The construction people are coming in and building off the back of that uh, money that's been lent by the lenders, by, by, the, by, the, um, by the banks. And... Uh, there's then a long operational phase, and it's during the operational phase of, say, 30 years, that the government entity is paying that project, that special purpose vehicle that's been set up for that project. They're paying them for the availability of that asset. And so the, 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 the wider project context of that sort of project is really interesting because there's so many different people coming into that from different industry perspectives and different professionalisms then need to actually operate as a cohesive lot 
and to pay back debt essentially off the availability of that um, that asset. So so all of that is you know I, I kind of grew up in and around that sort of environment in I mean spending a lot of time in law offices not because there was lots of claims but more because that's where the actual contracts are set up prior to them actually getting to financial close. So so that that was my life uh, until about six years ago when I, uh, for various reasons, decided to go back to, to university. I did a master's in project management, finance and risk because that kind of lived quite nicely within my past career. Then started doing a second master's uh, in psychology because I, having got my first master's and learning much more about how projects and project risk is is understood in and around that engineering and financial environment, I wasn't satisfied that I'd I'd got to the nub of how projects actually work. And I thought that human behavioral side was just as important, possibly more important, particularly as I'd spent my career relating with people and actually being more focused on that relationship building and that management and being an expert amongst other experts in that sort of environment than necessarily just worrying about spreadsheets and risk registers and all of the other great stuff that, you know, that, that, that these projects need to, to be able to operate properly. But through doing that, I was then starting to do a lot of networking with a lot of different types of people uh, from my desk by this time, because lockdown had sort of um, parked me in, at my desk, which is where I still now sort of anchor myself. But I was speaking to a lot of people still in and around this same environment with very different perspectives. And the thing that linked us all together was this collaborative feel and this collaborative need. And it was through that that somebody introduced me to the opportunity to do the PhD that I've now started. So I I joined Leeds um, in September last year and started a PhD in that sort of field. So I'm I'm, I'm within the the civil engineering school within the engineering faculty, um, but within the the projects center within that school. And my research focus is now project governance and governance around these big, complicated project types, but how that relates to specifically conflict and how conflict and governance are actually sort of collectively part of this same need for these relationships to be honed and nurtured and encouraged and conflict and specifically dispute being the evidence where perhaps that governance has failed or where the relationship has demonstrated itself to be unable to be contained by that governance structure. So that's a very long introduction, I suppose, but what it's really sort of offering is is, is where I've come from, how my research is actually sort of completely relatable to my career and how my career going forward is completely relatable to both my PhD research as it is now but also where I've come from, but how all of that, you know, in the bigger picture, all comes down to something that I know you speak about a lot in these podcasts, which is collaboration, which is Mm -hmm. people coming together with different skill sets and finding ways to collaborate. And, And it really excites me hearing some of the people that have been on this podcast already talking about a research community that is increasingly becoming multidimensional and crossing uh, traditional boundaries of scholarship to actually try and find collaborative means to better our understanding of so many different things. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to potentially be 
um, trying to plug myself into to be part of that. Yeah, it sounds like the two masters, you know, your background, your huge background, many years in the field, and now the PhD, that's a perfect marriage really, isn't it? Because you've got the academic, the master's, now you're doing the PhD, but also you have that incredible you know, personal and professional experience to draw in into the PhD. Because I wondered, you know, after such a, an established career, it's quite a step to say, okay, I'm leaving my professional career on ice for a while. And now I am really following that drive to go into the research arena. Collaboration is something that is part of what we do, isn't it? And I was really pleased to see that you have such a strong interest in collaboration. That you also spotted that on our podcast because mm. as part of research culture goes, collaboration is everything, isn't it? It's a center without without our colleagues, our the people we work with and we research for and who contribute to our research, you know. You can't do it in isolation anymore. Do you want to say a little bit more about your approach to collaboration? Uh, yeah, okay. So, I mean, two things. Firstly, from a, from an academic perspective, I'm actually borrowing from what a wide um, canon of different uh, thought processes around what collaboration is, but specifically around what shared intentions can be uh, one, one person to, to the next. Borrowing from people like, um, Tomasello and, and others who who are focused on that that sort of more anthropogenic big picture. This is fundamentally what the human being is, a a, a being that builds, which is I guess Heidegger, but but is also a being that is cooperating and learning to cooperate and learning to collaborate in more profound ways than necessarily other animals do. So so at that really sort of high level. There's, there's, there's that. But if you then equate that back to anything that you're doing in a collaborative group, there's, there's a, there's a strong argument that says that we're more than just the aggregation of our desires to exchange and to, to enter into contracts and to enter into agreements and to sort of do something because it, it, it's a trade between what I want and what you want. There's a, there's a strong sentiment now that, and, and this includes within the governance. Uh, world that there is a whole relationship side that is that is more about trust and it's more about developing long-term relationships not about being clear about how you finish an exchange but how you actually continue to build a a network of like-minded or different-minded but similarly focused um, people that you can actually do more together than if you were doing something by yourself and so that's the sort of the academic framework in which I'm putting my research in. But I relate that completely back to how I have basically run my life. And I think how I've always found people who have similarly collaborative intentions. And actually, I think most people, I mean, there's, you know, there's the odd person that's quite clearly in for themselves. But I think there's a lot of people out there who are, who are wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves and are prepared to actually be uh, a net contributor as opposed to a net uh, consumer of wider um, collaborative effort. And so approaching that in my friendships, approaching that in my professional relationships, approaching that in all walks of life is actually just part and parcel of how I operate. And, and, I, and I think 
I think there's there's plenty of people that would probably resonate with that, which is fantastic because given some of the ridiculously huge uh, challenges that now face us all, um, these are the moments where if we're if we're able to understand collaboration in the context of research, if we can be collaborative in our research, if we can use collaborative efforts in the real world that help to inform that understanding and if that understanding can actually help the real world then that collaborative effort that we're all anthropologically supposedly defined by all becomes much more meaningful and um, available to uh, much more difficult uh, and unachievable um, things that suddenly become more likely to be achievable so, so the collaborative focus for me is absolutely you know it's why on my linkedin profile my 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 opener is is essentially saying i'm a collaborator and i'm looking for other collaborators to collaborate with it it's it's it it is the fundamentals and the more i speak to people in that sort of language and the more i bring scholarship in to back up those sorts of sentiments and the more examples of people actually reaffirming that in their own lives in their own ways the more it sort of gives me me reason and passion to 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 continue doing that marriage of the academic and um and and the, the academic and I, I keep saying the real world i, I don't want you know to be insulting to the scholarship world and the practical world the the the, the theory and the praxis if that can be married around that same sentiment then surely that's um that that's 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 moving us in the right direction. So yes, mm. collaboration is is all for me. And it's interesting because our podcast here is a collaboration. And mm. when you described how you collaborate, I mean, I'm a good example because we've met a few times through the university and careers workshops I lead and we had some conversations. And then last Friday, we actually started talking about LinkedIn and we ended up discussing the meaning of life, you know, yeah. <laughs> which was, you know, a conversation that would stick with me for a long time because incredibly deep came out of the blue. And it just showed to me, oh, there's someone who's really deep thinker and really interested in having deep conversations with people and not afraid to build that trust, you know. And so for me, it's also really important, you know, collaboration as we talk about it, but to step back and think, what does it actually mean? You know, how do you have good collaboration? You've worked in big infrastructure projects. I started out as a project manager in international education. We know we work with people. There's always, you know, there are always different views, different agendas, different preferences. There's time pressure, financial pressure. Somehow you have to get, build something from zero and then succeed. And for me, it's really important that we open up a conversation about research culture and collaboration because there's an emotional aspect. You understand this because A, you've been, you've lived it, but also, you know, you did your master's in psychology. And what surprises me often is that in the scientific world, we don't really look enough at the emotional aspects of collaboration. Everyone says, oh, I'll collaborate. And then people have issues they struggle with. And I think it's so good to have those conversations because in anything in life, if we want to create something, they're bound to be tensions, but that doesn't mean that the projects don't work or the creation doesn't come to fruition. But how do we as academics, as professional service people, how do we become more skillful at building those con collaborations and also accept, you know, they can go up and down, there will be conflict, but that is normal. <laughs> and mm. that is also useful because it helps us 
discuss things, come to conclusions and then move forward. Do you want to say a little bit more about that aspect, the emotional aspect of collaboration and how you see that happening around you? Yeah, I I, I do, because I think the I think the key word you use there, actually, or you used lots of key words, actually, but the one that really resonates with me is 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 conflict and 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 using and acknowledging that conflict is actually not always unproductive that conflict is actually inevitable and and for me the inevitability of that comes from the fact that we are we are designed uh, we are designed as human beings to to be in a constant state of wanting to be doing something specific but at the same time needing to be aware of other things that are coming into interview that maybe may end up being more important um more appropriate and better or there is just the conflict of um different goals that some people are trying to do something for a certain reason some people are trying to do something for a different reason and and so i i think i think that whole that whole understanding of of what we're doing you know even you and i now when we're having this conversation that the whole premise of um what that is 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 actually something that we we perhaps sometimes take for granted and don't fully appreciate how how important it is to be building enough trust in a relationship that enables a safe means by which different views can be exchanged different goals can be acknowledged different agendas can be debated so that um the end result the 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 foundation by which the next collaborative moment comes is is built on strength and is not built on uh, false promises and essentially uh, commitments to um contractual undertakings or just a desire to get paid and and get gone um but but that that deeper sense of shared shared result shared outcome shared possibility or different possibilities that actually just um sit together nicely and collectively build something that that all parties can actually be be happy with is is for me a a fundamental part of that and i think in research context because i mean i don't think many people do do this academic journey at any moment in their lives um because they think it's going to be the way that they can earn the most money. Um I I I I mean there are a few I suppose but but for most people this seems to be it almost seems to be a calling or a a a reason to sort of be doing something that is that is that is contributing because you know, essentially that's what we are isn't it we're we're learning to contribute knowledge contribute to understanding not not necessarily just solving problems and earning money from the solution. So 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 the academic mindset if you like coming back to this this idea of emotions or feelings or or just just uh ways ways of being actually become quite ingrained in all of that but i also want to sort of counter some of that and say um uh we need to be mindful of other people's feelings but we also need to be aware of our own emotions and feelings and not be too precious about um our our perspective being the right perspective and 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 actually i i i sometimes wonder if as a society we we enable ourselves to be um strong enough and robust enough and 
without hubris enough to to really be able to um, give productive conflict um, its fair um, its fair due. I mean, I I I look at what's going on, for example, in um, the exchanges that are had now in the Houses of Parliament, for example, and there is very little there that suggests to me that people are really trying to have the necessary conflict of ideology that enables the better outcomes to be aired. Um, there seems to be an awful lot of emotional rhetoric that is being used instead of the conflict, as opposed to using the impassioned positions to further the dialogue. And and that's a very different thing. And and it's point scoring, isn't it? I yeah, mean, for me is, being it German, it's, yeah, and, it's bewildering. Yeah. <laughs> Our approach yeah, to democracy yeah. is very yeah. different. It's more about and, rational and, and, and debate. Being, being, being too quick to be offended or being yeah. too belligerent in being offensive. These are these are the soft skills. You know, these are the for me, these are the these are the challenges, but they're also the the reasons that, you know, the human the human endeavor is different to every other. Um that that we can we can find means within ourselves, because I mean I think a lot of a lot of our own emotional baggage comes from our own inner conflict. And and actually sort of as a metaphor, that sort of then quite nicely spreads out into much bigger scales. But we're, we we can be very bad at um, properly articulating that, or po- or properly understanding that, or being more conciliatory in furthering our understanding by understanding the other perspective more than we want to make other people more aware of our own. Mm. And that's that's you know those are the those are the real challenges. <clears throat> yeah, and I think when I re- remember my days as a project as an official project manager, there was always you know it was often huge time pressure and there was always a temptation to just jump in and get on with it. And I learned over the years that taking time at the beginning, doing, you know, spending time with each other, what are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to get out of here? What are different interests, you know, and really spending time on setting professional boundaries, understanding people's agendas and building that trust with each other. That was time so well spent mm-hmm. because you just knew once you have the trust and that open communication, you you just knew whatever happens, we can deal with it. And I think that's a real skill that researchers develop and that they probably underestimate because when I talk to researchers about their project management skills, which they're obviously developing as part of doing a PhD or a postdoc or whatever their academic career might be, very often it's the, the project management, you know, the, the technical, the you know, the technical skills, the hard skills of project management, you know, time, budgets, plans, all this, you know, man source, all these kind of things. But actually we don't, uh, we don't put enough emphasis on, you know, the influencing, the adapting, the listening for starters, you know, the questioning, the challenging, all these incredibly important skills. And they're not soft skills. I hate the word soft skills. They are essential skills. They're human skills. And I think the more we become aware of those skills, the better the collaborations can actually Mm. happen because we're collaborating everywhere in the university, whether you are in academia doing academic research or whether you're in professional services, you know, we collaborate, you collaborate with external people as well. You know, it's it's absolutely the foundation of what we do. Absolutely. And and, and that works both ways, actually, because I, I, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of people still see older PhDs as the novelty, but I think there's, you could almost flip that and say, why aren't there more older people doing a PhD? Or why aren't there more older people who have built a foundation, a financial foundation for themselves in a career who, who by the time they get to 
my age, I'm, I was 50 last December. Why, why, why are people getting to that age and only thinking about the, the final few laps to, 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 to get towards retirement, which is kind of the conversation we're having last week, wasn't it? Mm. And, and I think doing a PhD later in life is a very different, is a very different challenge, but at the same time, all of those skills that you're learning as a young PhD in terms of learning how to be adaptive and organized and um, self, self-fulfilling or, or, or to, you know, self-capable, self-starting, um, autonomous, all of those things, I think if you're coming into a PhD later in life, you've kind of, you know, most people anyway have, have kind of one way or another learn, learn a lot of those skills. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I suppose I'm in a project management um, environment. So if, if I couldn't manage a project um, that I'm actually sort of running myself, there'd be, there'd be other questions asked of me. But, but I, think, I think coming into a PhD later in life, particularly if you've been fortunate enough to have had a career where you can claim to have some level of financial um, stability or at least a platform from which you can be building beyond earning more money, there is, there is something to be said about those, those life skills that, yes, as a young PhD, you can then sell to... Um, to a potential employer or indeed just sell to to um, to your own future possibilities in whatever shape or form you want that to be but in exactly the same way it can it, it works the other way that sort of the 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 challenges of the phd or the challenges of advancing understanding is something that you are personally very impassioned about is easier and more difficult for very different reasons but the things that you have already learned in life are advantageous to bring back to a PhD, as well as doing a PhD to learn those things to take into um, later life. So, so I think it, I think it works both ways, and I, and I think in both senses, that means to contribute by doing, but also understanding other perspectives, and therefore that collaborative spirit that is built out of that. Um, I, I, I think it, um, I think it lives strongly in. The researcher community, and and I'm excited that it's sort of it's now becoming much more apparent that people are seeking out collaborative opportunity, or indeed just seeking out means to get insight from other research areas um, that may or may not develop into future research directions. But having the conversation and having that possibility of that insight and breaking down some of those traditional silos of ownership of a particular field of interest. All of those things for me are positive um, perspectives. And it's, so therefore, you know, for me personally, it's an exciting time to be trying to knock on the door of academia um, because academia seems to be speaking a language I can relate to. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And it's interesting because when I spoke to Marianne Talbot, who's also started her PhD later in life, she always has such a vested interest in the topic. I wonder, that, that there is a PhD in there, isn't there? You know, a PhD Experience about PhDs. Yes. yes, exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's yeah, a topic that I would love yeah, to do. Yeah, you know, why, yeah. why do experienced professionals make that yeah. huge change and sacrifices in many ways and venture out on something that is very challenging, but also, I guess, very, very satisfying and how they're building their, I mean, I'm a, you know, how they're building their career, because as a career professional, that's always what, what interests me in, in particular is how are they using that PhD experience for their career. And so that leads me onto the question. And you said a few things already about, you know, aspirations, 
where do you see yourself going, Warren? I, I, I actually quite, um, I'm quite pleased to tell you I don't really know. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because um, I think I've now got to a, a point in my life and, and, and indeed my career that I don't necessarily need to be planning so far ahead. And, and actually because, because I've come back to essentially a learning environment, I'm, I'm just treating my current experience as an expansion of my possibilities that the, there are, you know, my, my horizons are expanding as opposed to drawing in um, because of my age, not despite it. And, and bringing myself into sort of new environments and having conversations with new people and having my assumed understanding challenged so profoundly means that, you know, I'm, I'm 10 months into a three stroke, four year PhD journey um, and being less precious about where that's taking me, I think is probably the right attitude for me to be having. The, the only thing I can tell you with some conviction is that despite most of my career having half an eye on retirement and making sure I've got something I can retire to, um, I have never been less enthused about the idea of retirement than I am right now. And and so at 50 years old, if my brain and my physical being um, keep uh, in sync with my, my my attitude, then whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be doing it for quite a long time. Yeah. And and so the the whole the whole idea of retirement has become something of a misnomer for me in terms of um, focus. But to be less abstract in answering your question, I could, I think, um, make a case for going into civil service or that area of um significant infrastructure and look at their project side i could probably continue doing the consultancy work i was doing previously but looking at it from a a, a different perspective um i could go back to one of my past careers and bring something new into into those areas but most likely in my current mindset is actually staying within this environment of of, of academic um and research progression and um so and, and, and maybe it'll be a combination of all of those things. I, I, I don't know. But, but, but whatever it is, the point I'm making um, rather verbosely is in my midlife, I am growing a new set of doors by which I could possibly walk through. And which one of those I choose, I don't yet know. But it's, it's, it's really motivating for me to think that actually what I'm doing at the moment is growing, growing possibilities and not denying them. There's an answer in there somewhere. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a very clear answer in that, Warren. Yeah. And I really get a very strong sense from you. You are so content where you are. You're curious and open where it will take you. You have a lot of different opportunities, but that's not really what you focus on. You're enjoying your PhD really get into grips with the research environment and the research and the collaborations and then hey you know things will evolve and develop and i'm a big believer in in um happenstance when i think how mm. i ended up in careers it was total happenstance and serendipity and look at me i've been in the field for 30 years and i still find it the most exciting thing and there yeah. is no way yeah. that i will retire we had this conversation last yeah. week yeah. you know i have yeah. a role model um, a researcher who started a PhD at 68, 
got the PhD, taught at the university, and now she's almost 80 and she's doing an internship, you know, so she is Amazing. my role model. Because yeah. I think, you know, as long as we're still well and healthy and with it, so to say, what's stopping you? Um, the world is so exciting. We have so many mm. challenges that, that need an answer. And and I think, yeah. But Warren, before we finish, and thank you so much for such a deep conversation, what's your top tip for someone considering shall I shall I not because it is a very big step isn't it and not everyone is in the position where they say you know financially I'm safe now some people yeah have to you know make huge sacrifices mm. and um, have to decide do I add to my pension or do I become a PhD what would your top tip be for them um, well I'd, I'd, I'd say in that collaborative context um, have conversations with people if you're thinking about a PhD you're probably naturally quite a curious person and able to actually start uncovering some of the the realities of the challenges of doing a PhD. Um, I'd say if you've if you've not done anything academic for quite some time, um, it might be useful to warm up with with doing something um, academically challenging. I wouldn't necessarily say you need to go back and do a, um, a master's, but um, it's it, it certainly shows intent if you are. But just just never never think it's too late. Um, and therefore also never think uh, you need to be in a rush. Um, so find your own groove, make it make sense for you. You certainly don't want to be financially um, destitute because you need to be mentally focused on your research. You, it, it's, 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 um, it would be so much harder for me if, if I was doing this and not sure if I could, um, if I could actually sort of financially survive. So cautiously, um, deliberately and uh, just one step at a time and um, at no point think you have passed the moment where you can so I mean and I can say this with some authority that uh, your brain is continues to be plastic which means it continues to be adaptable um, much later in life than than most people give credit for and so when you hear examples of people doing phds in their late 60s um they are they are exceptional um exceptional in their attitudes not their physiology um i think if you if you have a you have a brain for it and you'll probably know if you have a brain for it then you're probably young enough <laughs> it's just then a question of motivation and perseverance and focus and a bit of luck always a bit of luck and and i know you talked about happenstance i mean the things that sort of just fell my way for me to be sat here talking about being a fully funded phd student at the age of 50 you know i'd, I'd it'd take at least one more podcast to just explain all of the, the happenstance that that came my way to enable that but at the same time you know i, I forget who says it but sort of you know the the more i practice the or the um, yeah, the more I practice, the luckier I get. I, I think there's a lot to that. That sort of if, if you if you keep an open mind and whilst you're focused on what you're doing, you still have half an eye on other things that are going on around you, and being open to the idea of there being another thing that could be being done, um, and making making decisions as opposed to just letting things um, flow one way or the other. All of that you know, actually sort of um, brings more possibility of happenstance. Sort of, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the fortune of happenstance is, is actually sort of in your favour if you, if you make more of those possibilities um, available. So just, 
just just yeah nobody should be in a rush but at the same time nobody should feel that they um they're precluded from the club and it all starts with a good conversation and warren thank you so much for having a good conversation with me and i look forward to seeing you again in some of my workshops and all the best with your phd thank you Ruth. pleasure as always to have a chat thank you thanks for listening to the research culture uncovered podcast please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Thanks for listening and here's to you and your research culture.